You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another podcast of Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists. I'm here with Ben. Say hey, Ben. Hey, guys. And once again, we are super excited about the podcast and about where we are and the folks that have responded. We've had tremendous amounts of emails over the past couple of months. It's been really, really cool. Yeah. A lot of people are interested in hybrids. Yep. A lot of people have been interested in pond management. Yep. So Yeah, it's been really good. So keep the emails coming. We'll keep answering them. Ben will answer most of them because he's better at it than I am. But uh, we do appreciate the response that we're getting from every one of you listening. And we're also trying to ferret out our the questions to the appropriate biologist. So if you don't hear back from me or Corey, it's because we were trying to put you in better hands than we couldn't fulfill. Yeah. Believe it or not, we don't know everything. That is not a surprise. That's not a surprise to me either. So, But today... We're going to talk about river herring. Yeah, we got a guy who might know everything. Might know everything. So, Chris, tell us all about yourself. Thanks, guys. My name is Christopher Smith. I'm the fisheries biologist in District 1, which is the northeast part of the state. Cover about 13 counties around the Albemarle Sound, including Matamesquite and Lake Phelps. I guess we'll be talking about river herring today. That's right. So, river herring is near and dear to me. It was my granddaddy's favorite fish. And in fact, my granddaddy was one of these guys that dipped them up out of one of the local creeks. And the quintessential heron story, if you talk to some of the old timers, and and my granddaddy was definitely an old timer, is, you know, we caught so many heron that we filled up the back of a Studebaker truck, which I think I calculated it to be like 375 pounds, something like that. I'm impressed that you did the calculation, to be honest with right. you. I mean, that's impressive enough. Gold star for you, Ben. I don't know everything, but I know how many pounds <laughs> of herring will go in the back of a Studebaker truck. I have to go back to my notes and see if that's actually true for anybody who's crunching numbers as we speak. But somewhere in that neighborhood is what gotcha. it was. But filled up the back of a Studebaker truck, had so many herring, they ate all they could fresh, they pickled them. And we'll get into all that kind of stuff as we get to talk about it. But they pickled them. They fed them to the hogs. They fertilized the fields. They tried to sell them. Whether or not that's what they should have done is a whole nother question. And then they wind up just dumping them because they had so many hand. And then my granddaddy would look at me and he'd say, Ben, how come we can't keep no more? And I, <laughs> and I would always say, well, clearly it's your fault, Bob. You took too many. But... But the funny thing is when you look back at the heron history, it was such a popular fishery. They were being harvested in the ocean. They were being harvested in the sound. They were being harvested in the creek. Everywhere it went, something was trying to get after it. And so that was part of why we're where we're at with our heron is just because of the popularity. Chris, let's talk a little bit about the Chowan River and the canneries and that whole industry that was on the Chowan before we kind of get too far along the road, so we just understand what's Hold going on, on there. Not everybody out there knows what a river herring is. Okay, we can go there. Let's talk about what a river herring actually is so we know what we're talking about. 
So where I'm from, they might even call them herons. 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 That's what they called them where I'm from, too. Or herrings, but it's all the same thing. Yep. Not a heron. That's a bird. Yes. Just to make that that's clear. That's true. That's right. No one wants to can a bird. Well, maybe. <laughs> there are people that can birds, but maybe not a heron. Yeah, so I think there's two different species of herring. There's the alewife and the blueback. They're part of the, what we call, alosin family. So they're related to your American shad, your hickory shad. Those of us that are familiar with gizzard shad, those are all in the same family, as well as like menhaden and threadfin shad as well. Right. So they're, you know, a silvery bait fish type species as some of our, you know, anglers might think of them. So threadfin would be another one that's in that group as well. Yeah, they're pretty much bait fish. Except for the folks that eat them. Except for the folks that eat them. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people listening that'll be like, I eat them. Yeah, that's no bait fish. <laughs> that's not a bait fish. <laughs> that's my bait fish. <laughs> right. So they're very prolific, you know, at one point. And so because of their nature of the species, they're in high abundance until, and that I, maybe we should talk about that for a minute. Yeah. When you talk to some of these guys that have been around forever, they talk about how they used to wash and they were thick on the banks and that kind of thing. Chris, let's talk about about why we don't have as many herring as we used to have. Yeah, that's a definitely a good question. Kind of going back into the history, you know, that there was a substantial fishery in the 70s through 80s for herring. I think the kind of the peak was in probably about 85, 86. I think we were harvesting, we as in North Carolina was harvesting right about 11 and a half million pounds uh, that year. That's a lot of Studebakers. A lot of Studebakers. <laughs> And most of that came from the northeast part of the state, especially the Chowan River, which Ben alluded to earlier. So what were they using them for? What was the purpose of them harvesting? What was the product that they put out? Pickled herring. They love pickled herring. People love pickled herring. They also like frying them whole. I've heard stories of these fishermen just gathering on the creek side and having these huge bonfires and just frying up herring right there on the edges of the creeks that they, they catch the herring in. Mm-hmm. So let's not take away from the folks that love to use them as cut bait and live bait and all that stuff. But really, the bulk of this fishery was a, for consumption. And really, what Chris is talking about is, you know, in that, let's just say the early 80s, if you were eating a herring anywhere on the East Coast, it likely came out of the Chowan River. Yeah. Unless you caught it yourself. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's fisheries all up and down the, the coast, but the driving fishery that was supplying the commercial market really was the Chowan River. And there was numerous canneries on the banks of the Chowan River that were supplying this industry. And it was pretty amazing to even think about how many, you know, 11 million pounds that were coming out in a period of just a few weeks, really, yep. you know. Very short season. Because where, Chris, you know, where are these fish when they're not in our rivers? Talk about their life history a little bit for a second. So herring are what we call anadromous fish, and all that means is they're migratory. They spend most of their time in the ocean, most of their life cycles in the, in the ocean, and then they come into freshwater to spawn. And that usually occurs mid-February into late April, early May. Right, but not just the ocean. How far away from North Carolina do they go? I mean, they go all the way up the East Coast into Nova Scotia. Right. We're going to geek out here for a minute about fish because that's what we do. Yeah. That's why I became a fish biologist. It, these movements of these anadromous fish, these migratory fish is amazing to me. The fact that you can have a fish that's just living its best life off the coast of Maine 
And then it just decides, I'm going to go back to the river that I was born from and makes it there. That's a long, arduous journey, too, because when you're up, I mean, what are they, 8 to 12 inches max? Yep. 8 to 12 inches. You're 8 to 12 inch, silvery-sided, slim, no-bone fish. You're a tasty treat for something that's coming along. There's numerous bluefish, stripers, tuna, I'll be honest with you. I'm too lazy. I'd just stay in Maine. I mean, I would have. (laughs) Yeah, so it's amazing. These fish come from Maine. Not only that, but all of them are in Maine just living their best life. And then when they pick up on the right cue, some of them go to New Hampshire. Some of them go to New York. Some of them go to Virginia. Some of them go to Maine. Some of them go to South Carolina. Some of them go to North Carolina. And they all do it accurately. Yeah. It's pretty impressive that they have that kind of capability. So it's, and they're not the only ones that do it. The shad do it as well. Stripers do it as well. So it's a lot like the salmon fishery, except these fish do it year in, year out. Yeah, multiple times. Yeah. So it's pretty wild to me to just think about how they can do that, you know. And then a month after they've spawned, they're back off the coast of Maine somewhere. So... It's pretty wild and, to me. You know, when you think about a 8 to 12-inch fish swimming that far, that is a lot of effort just to reproduce. I mean, it really is. It's a, I mean, if they're in Maine, they come up the Chowan to spawn to go in the backs of creeks. They don't stop at the Chowan. They keep on trucking. You know, they're going as far back as they can until they find the spot that they want to be in. They'll head all the way up to Emporia Dam. Right. Or the first dam on the... Yeah. Whatever yeah. river. And we see them in the Chowan. We see them in the Roanoke. I mean, really, especially historically, they were in every creek and ditch in coastal North Carolina. Yeah, my dad talks about, I mean, he was born in the 50s, and my dad talks about he lived in the Noose and Tar Basin area, general area, and he talked about you could go out in the backyard, basically, and if it was a ditch that had any kind of water in it in the spring of the year, there were herring there. When you talk about that kind of thing, that is a lot of fish. Like, when you think about the poundage it takes for basically every little ditch and every little creek, you know, to be, have herring in it. That's a huge biomass of fish that we don't even see anymore. Like it's gone. Uh, it's a fraction of it's what it used to be. a fraction of what it used to be. And I mean, you were talking earlier, Chris, I can remember in my childhood, people having herring fries on the riverbank. When I would go fishing for other things, I was going fishing out in the spring and the herring were running. There were people standing on the bank. They were having herring fries. I mean, heck, it ain't cow pen. It's the one pitch kettle. pitch kettle. At pitch kettle, they used to basically put a seine out, hook it to a tractor, and pull it up the bank, and there was herring all in it. You know, that's what they did. So it's come a long way in terms of its decline as a fishery, for sure. Right. I mean, you used to literally could put a dip net in the water, and the herring, you could just scoop up as many yeah. herring as you, you wanted to. You didn't have to work for it. That's why you filled Studebaker's with them, because you thought, I mean, I get it. You do think... When you see something like that, you think it's an endless supply. Sure. Particularly when you don't think about the biological consequences of what you're doing at the time. You just think, well, these fish show up every year this time, you know, and they don't ever seem to get less of them. The problem is, is it, as y'all know, and a lot of listeners know that know about river herring, is that that crash was quick. Like, we went from millions of pounds to basically nothing in a very short window. The decline was very rapid. And so it's like we met a threshold that we didn't know was coming that would collapse the fishery, and it happened all at once. Well, and it also kind of 
you know, and Chris can probably add more to this than I can, but it was kind of the perfect storm too, because we yeah. had several dams that were constructed on some of our rivers that also limited access to spawning grounds. You know, there was a host of different issues that were limiting where these fish were spawning as well as just cropping the fish off as well. And then, like you said, we got to a point where the bounce back wasn't near as easy. So, you know, you were talking about, was it 11 million pounds? Is that what we were harvesting? At its peak, right? That was the peak. Yeah, at its peak. And I think at its peak as a nationwide industry, if my memory serves me right of of the presentations I've seen on herring, it was like 70 million pounds was the peak. So if you think about like, was that one seventh or maybe my math's wrong. It's probably more than roughly, roughly one seventh of it is coming from North Carolina. The rest of the Atlantic coast made up the rest of it, which is a lot more. I mean, and it's really coming out of the Chowan. Mm -hmm. You think about that 11 million pounds. Well, I would probably guess 80, 90% of it probably came out of the Chowan. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was a high percentage for sure. Yeah, it was definitely a high percentage. We were talking about that crash, and we estimated our biomass in the, I guess, mid-70s at 14 million pounds. And that crashed really quickly in 1986-ish to less than a million pounds. So from 14 million pounds to less than a, a million pounds is... If you're harvesting 11 million pounds at its peak and 14 million is going to be hard to maintain it. Tough times. Tough times for sure. So, yeah, and this is what we are faced with as natural resource managers all the time is we have these issues and we have to address them. We have to limit harvest and try to restore the population. And that's really where we've been in the last almost 20 years now is trying to rebuild this population. Chris, now there's no harvest. So what are the things that are kind of in our way right now as far as why don't we have 14 million pounds in the river today? Overfishing is definitely not the issue right now, at least in North Carolina waters. You know, there's some definitely bycatch of of river herring out in the ocean. Atlantic herring fishery, for sure. Right. So just so we're clear on this, so our listeners know, there are other species of herons. The two that we're mainly talking about in this podcast are river herring which are alewife and blueback heron. But there's also Atlantic heron. There's Pacific heron. We don't see many of those due to... I'd hope not. You know, the continent. (laughs) Big old piece of land in between. As we've said before, (laughs) fish need water, and the continent is... Not water. Well, there's water on it, but... Right. Yeah. Anyway. So, I mean, right now we're looking at, at habitat loss. Ben mentioned that, you know, there's a lot of dams being built, hydroelectric powers, essential these days. So... That's one of the biggest issues, building bridges and culverts. Sometimes fish don't like to, to swim through these culverts that are placed on these creeks. So, so uh, yeah, stop there. That's let's a, talk uh, about that because I think that's a key issue there. You know, again, we talked about how these herring use ditches. Yeah, they swim from the Bay of Fundy to a ditch in North Carolina, and that ditch has a round corrugated black plastic culvert in that ditch, and. Let's talk about that dynamic and what problems that's causing. Yeah. So some of these culverts can be 15, 20 feet long and pitch black. These fish don't like to to swim in that long of uh, a tunnel where it's pitch black. So those culverts pretty much act as a barrier to the the spawning habitat on the other side. Right. So there's a 
a gum swamp or something that these herons use on that's on the other side of a road. There's a culvert there. They, I mean, they're literally denied access, even though there's a a liquid link. But they're not going to use that culvert because they don't want to swim through a tiny hole. Tiny hole. It's you know, I get that. They've been in the ocean. They don't want to neck down quite that much. Maybe. Yeah, they'll literally stack up on one side of the culvert mm-hmm. and won't swim through it. And they will spawn there. But then the question is, is that the right place for them to spawn? given the conditions of that season. Yeah, and I think the thing to keep in mind about the culvert issue or basically what we would call in the biological world aquatic organism passage, you know, basically letting an aquatic organism get above that barrier is that, you know, if you think back to when herring was in before its heyday, think back to the 50s and the 60s and the amount of roads we had then. And when I say roads, I mean beyond just paved roads. We're talking gravel roads and everything else, right? Think of all the roads we had then and think of the roads that we had in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, the amount of roads we have now. There's a lot more pavement and gravel and roads in the northeast part of the state than there used to be, just like it is everywhere else in the state, right? And so as fisheries managers, we have to think about how do we get that animal past that passage? or past that point that's stopping them. And this is true everywhere in the state. It's not just true for river herring. It's true in the mountains. It's true in the Piedmont. Those are real issues for fish and other organisms, whether it be crayfish or mussels or whatever that that live in the water. So I think another thing to talk about when we're talking about what has limited some of our recovery efforts with herring, and Chris, we're going to put Corey on the spot on this one. So we had, give or take, 14 million pounds. We harvested give or take 11 million pounds, and we were left with give or take 7 million pounds. So we beat the population down to a very low level. You want to talk to us about what happens when a population persists at a low level and how that kind of sometimes limits recovery? I really don't want to, but I will, I guess. I mean, it's a sad story. <laughs> it is a sad story, and you can add to this because I won't cover it as well as you probably will because y'all deal with it more than I do. But, you know, once you get to that low level, it just seems to, there's just not that standing stock biomass that you need to come back to the spawning grounds year after year after year. And and everybody thinks, at least in the river herring story, a lot of people think that it's something that if we quit fishing them, they'll come back immediately because they are prolific, right? right? Yeah, I mean, it's been 18 years. It's been 18 years. That's right. It's been 18 years. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that when you get it down to that low of a level, it's going to take forever. And honestly, we've had this conversation, Ben and I have had this conversation, our chief and I have had this conversation, that, you know, expectations for river herring are probably not what it was in the 70s and 80s. That's probably not recovery. It's probably not realistic because we've knocked it down so low that it never really will come back to that level. One, not only are they facing, you know, if we ever opened up a fishery again, not only are you facing harvest issues, but we're facing all the other issues we've talked about, the habitat limitations. Those dams that were put on the Chowan and the Roanoke and the Noose and the Tar, for that matter, those dams were not put out there in the 70s. Those dams were put out there a lot earlier than that. But I think that it just takes that long to have an effect on a population. People think that the crash came all because of overharvest. My statement would be the overharvest was the final nail 
the rest of the nails were already being laid in the coffin for River Herring. It was already declining. It was already declining. And we, because we were basing numbers off of commercial fisheries, we really didn't know that that was happening. And if you look at other commercial fisheries that collapse across the world, really, like the best years, the peak years are usually like three or four years right in front of it just going flat. So you really don't have this sign that it's coming, right? And I've ventured off, sorry. That's all good. But once you get to that just kind of abysmal level, because think back what we just talked about. These things lived in ditches in the spring of the year in North Carolina. They haven't lived in ditches in the spring of the year in North Carolina in a long time. Wasn't in my lifetime. I've been here 40, almost 44 years. They didn't live in ditches in my lifetime. They were in ditches back in the 50s and the 60s. They vacated those ditches through the 70s and the early 80s, right? And to get that kind of numbers back on the landscape is going to be a tremendous effort. When you're starting out with such a small, small spawning population that's left. Right. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that we've seen a little bit better numbers. And people are like, oh, 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 we got better numbers. We're nowhere near what that fishery looked like. 40 years ago. Right. Nowhere near. We're not even close. I mean, it's not even a blip on the radar screen, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. Yeah, it's an amazing thing to think of where we were versus yeah. where we are now. Yeah. When you take the whole picture of herring, in my opinion, like if you look at the 200-year, it's more than that since Europeans have been here, but if you look at the last 100 years of river herring, right, and look at where we were and where we are, it is dramatic. The difference in river herring is dramatic. In fact, it's probably the most dramatic of all the fisheries in North Carolina in terms of just sheer numbers of fish and sheer biomass that was here that basically is not really here anymore. It's in very low levels. And so that's a hard climb to go back up. We got some pretty hardcore fishermen that listen to this podcast. Oh, yeah. They're going to be like, I see river herring everywhere I go. Well, not only that, but... And that's good. There may be some guys that don't, they're like, Ben and Corey talked about musky fishing. They talked about trout fishing. They've talked about striper fishing. Not very many people are fishing rod and reel for herring. Yeah. But what's the importance? Yeah, well, they're the base of the food chain for all the things that people want to rod and reel fish for, especially in the spring of the year. I mean, whether it be striped bass, largemouth, heck, red drum, a speckled trout on the coast. I mean... It's coming up the river. It's coming by every predator that comes by. And it was a major, major food source for all of those predators. And you're seeing some of those issues bear out. Because if you look at striper populations, if you look at, shoot, red drum and speckled trout populations at some level, and we don't really talk about those because we don't cover those. But they were swimming out of the river. That's right. And right into the mouth of some of those species. Exactly. And so everybody's like, well, where are striped bass at? I would say... Not only is it habitat-related, because it really is, but it's related to forage. When those animals died out, that's a huge part of the food chain during that spring time of the year that doesn't exist anymore, or doesn't exist in big numbers anymore. Not near at the same level, for sure. Chris, I know you've seen it, but during some of our surveys, even though there's less herring, what do you see around these herring populations when you're out there surveying the fish populations? I mean, pretty much everything Corey mentioned, anywhere from largemouth bass to striped bass to chain pickerel to blue cats, bowfin, gar, you name it. Right. I mean, so 
there's still, and to be honest, it's been something that I really, since I started doing heron surveys with the Wildlife Commission, now granted, it's, and Chris will vouch for me here, it's a crazy busy time of year for us. There's so many irons in the fire, but every time I've done a heron survey, and for those of you who are angling and you're listening to this, here's a tip. Learn how to fish the heron run in coastal North Carolina because there are fish that are vulnerable right now that aren't quite as vulnerable yep. any other time of the year. Big largemouth. Yeah. Big stripers. Last year, during a heron survey, we collected the biggest largemouth ever seen in the coastal region, and it was 12 pounds. Yep. Ever seen in our surveys. Yeah. I'm sure there's been one bigger. Don't call and write (laughs) us and tell us that we're a bunch of liars. But if you do, his name's Ben Ricks. Ben Ricks, two bald biologists at org. So I'd love to hear about how you caught a bass bigger than... 12 pounds. 12 pounds. In I fact, would, send the photo and we'll use it. <laughs> honestly love to hear <laughs> yeah, about that love story. I love right. big fish stories. But yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about a little bit for a minute because we've had such a conservation slant on this discussion. But from an angling standpoint, understanding this heron run can be a huge benefit because I ran into anglers last spring and he said... Ben, what is y'all's average size bass you've seen today? And I was like, I don't even want to tell you. Like, he's like, is it that bad? I was like, no, it's been that good. I said, I bet our average size. Now, granted, it was the day we got twelve pounder, so that sure, I skewed it a little, skewed a little biased. But yeah, I was like, I bet our average size has been five pounds today. And in the coastal plain, it's huge. That's on point. Yeah, for sure. He says, well, what should I be throwing? And I said, well, hold up what you have tied on. And he had, you know, this three-inch long brown bait. And I was like, big. you got to throw something big and white. That's what these fish are looking for right now. So I think there's some opportunity there for a lot of our anglers in the spring. And, and there's probably some anglers that right now they're like, I can't believe he's handing over the golden tickets to yes, everybody. Please but, hush. There's an opportunity there to see some big fish that Mm -hmm. you need to look into. You called me last spring. You were on the boat, and you were like, man, you would not believe what we shocked up today. And your words to me were, they're out here feeding on swimming pork chops. And that is (laughs) such a good good analogy of what it is. I mean, that's what these herring look like to these fish, is swimming pork chops that are easy to get to right now. And they're only going to be here about two, three weeks at the most, and then they're going to be gone. Right. I mean, these fish move fast, except when they're spawning in the cypress knees. And these, once they're up against the cypress knees, they're an easy pickings for a lot of these predatory fish. So, talking about that, Ben, Chris, Chris, you fish a whole lot too. If we're trying to replicate this, what are we throwing to try to replicate that? I like to throw like a six inch, seven inch paddle tail. I like the sounds of this. This is going in the right direction. In a bluish, silverish color. Big swim bait. Yep. Big soft plastic. Even like a big Cinco, you know, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Big willow bladed spinner bait. Yep. Blue. Something flashy. You know, anything that's got a large profile and a lot of flash, because that's what these fish have. And so when I was a kid, and I think this still occurs even in the numbers that herring are in. A lot of times, you'll see fish feeding on herring. Like, they'll be slapping the water. I mean, they'll be sucking at the top of the water Mm because they're pushing herring up to the surface. Is that what you still see in the coastal plain when you're out and about? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, especially striped bass, you know, when a fish yeah. is shallow, they have a very distinct, real crisp way that they yep. break the water and strike yep. prey. So that's a real telltale. But, I mean, the bass do it. Everything's chasing them around. So it's pretty wild. But, which, you know, we spent, it's kind of interesting how this conversation's gone, Chris. We've gone full circle. We talked about how there aren't any, and then we talked about how they're everywhere in the spring. Let's balance this out because, yes, in the spring, in a small window, there are right many heron around, but they're not near what they used to be. So sometimes I think when folks are out fishing and they see a bunch of heron, they really just don't understand that while they are seeing, you know, there may be several thousand heron right in front of them. In the grand scheme of things, that's still not that many or not near what it used to be, right? I mean, I think that's a good point, Ben. Even though they're what we think is everywhere or what people think is everywhere, it's, I think that one of the take home messages is that it's nowhere near what it used to be. Right. I think that's kind of important to remember as well. Like we mentioned before in the podcast, I mean, these fish were living in ditches and now they're in maybe a, a handful of creeks from late February to early April, mid April. Well, they're everywhere. The window that you can just literally scoop them up with a dip net and still the amount that you can scoop up with a dip net now is nothing compared to what you used to could do. Yep. So my question is, is like, so you said they're found in creeks and like the Roanoke and Chowan. So like if for people listening and don't, you don't have to name creeks or anything like that, but in general, how many creeks are we talking about on the Roanoke Chowan that you survey? Is it like five, six? Is it 25? Is it? On the Chowan, we have... Two to four creeks that we sample coming from the mouth of the Chowan all the way up to Murfreesboro, which is just south of the Virginia line. Now, I know those are your sampling sites, but are they inhabiting all those creeks? Because there's more creeks than that, right? So are they, do they pick and choose their creeks? Like, I'm asking because I don't know, because this is a learning experience for me. So do they pick and choose their creeks that they like? Or is it from the mouth of the Chowan up to Murfreesboro? There in every creek at some number? I mean, that's a good question. And we're not exactly sure if they come back to their natal creeks. We know they come back to their natal river systems mm-hmm. or the Albemarle system. Mm-hmm. We're just not sure if they, they will go back to, say, Catherine's Creek where they were spawned. Gotcha. Or if they just pick the closest creek when environmental conditions get appropriate for spawning. Mm-hmm. Right. And we literally can't be everywhere. So, Oh, I understand that. And so there may be somebody listening who's like, well, I've never seen them sample in such and such a creek. And if yeah. you haven't seen it, you, you may be right. We may have never gone to that creek. But the creeks that Chris is sampling are sentinel sites, which means... We have long-term data out yeah, of those areas. They were known to be Heron Creeks historically. They are herring in that creek now, and we're looking for gross changes in abundance over time. So so I'm assuming some of the creeks that you are probably sampling herring on the Chowan were probably creeks that the canneries either sat near or were near because people were in there harvesting the poo out of them, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, getting as many as they can. And that's where those millions of pounds come. You're obviously not seeing millions of pounds now. You no, know, not even close. Yeah, I mean... When we're doing electrofishing surveys, like what's the general, I'm just asking, what's the kind of the average number you see in an hour of shocking fish, not pounds, but just fish? It all depends. If we get on a school that 
or if we have schools that come into those creeks ready to spawn, I mean, we can catch on average 150, 200 fish an hour of electrofishing time. That's extremely high. And that's when you're hitting them squarely, though. Yes. Like, that's at the peak. But think about that 150 to 200 fish an hour. That's nowhere near. Like if it was millions of pounds, right? So I'm trying to paint a picture to people listening. If it was millions of pounds, you step on the pedal, the water would explode, right? If millions of pounds were in that creek spawning like they used to be, the water would explode with fish everywhere. You wouldn't be able to dip them all, right? And now in a lot of places, not, I mean, like you said, you're giving us your best experience, you know, 150, 200 pounds and I cut you off and I shouldn't have, but I do that a lot. That's why I'm on the podcast. (laughs) But there's also places you go at times, and it's like crickets, right? Yeah. I mean, there'll be places where... In the same day. In the same day. And you're like, herring should be here, and they're not. And so that's kind of my point, is that it's just another indication that we're we're still a long ways from any type of real recovery with river herring. From And Chris can tell me if I'm... Or add to it, maybe. From the work that we've done in the noose, especially, herring are everywhere that you think herring should be which means if you go back and you look at the historical map, at some point during the heron run, there are heron utilizing the creeks, you know, starting around Slocum and going all the way up just shy of Smithfield. Mm-hmm. So they go that far. They go all the way to Smithfield. The furthest up the noose that I've seen one was in Clayton. Wow. I didn't realize they went quite that far. Right. That surprises me. But the question is, and Chris kind of alluded to it, are they utilizing the lower noose? Or they just in the lower noose, and as the water temperature warms, they just keep moving upstream. That's one of the kind of research questions that we still have about their behaviors in our river is, are they utilizing all the creeks and just ambling upstream as the water warms, or are different groups of heron using different pieces mm-hmm. of the river themselves? Yeah. You know, so. And we're sitting here talking, and we as biologists, we're sitting here pontificating kind of on things that we don't know, but we've done a lot of work on river herring as an agency. The Wildlife Commission has done a tremendous amount of work. NC State's done a lot of work. Yeah. And we're not the only agency that manages herring either. That's right. Division of Marine Fisheries, NOAA, Fish and Wildlife Service, numerous agencies have their hand in this cookie jar, so to speak. Yeah. And so for people listening, you know, we have done a tremendous amount of work. If you want to know about it, you can email us at twobaldbiologistsancwildlife.org, and we can pass that information along, the reports along to you, so that you can learn more about river herring for sure. Let's talk a little bit about where we are with herring now. What's the status report of herring, if you will? We talked about how we're not where we want to be. We're not, you know, there used to be a lot, and now there's not as many. We've established that. But, uh, yeah, if you hadn't figured that out by now. You're not listening. Yeah. Or we're not great communicators, which might be the case. There's a chance for both. There's a chance for both. Chris, talk to us a little bit about from the data that we have and from your experience pouring over that data, where are we going? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Are we winning? Are we losing? What's your... Or thumbs sideways. Yeah. So looking at our alewife population, going back, we have data on our Sentinel Creeks from 2012 to this year, present. Our alewife populations, are our catch rates are, are fairly stable. We see some years that are higher rates than others. We see some years that are lower. But the overall trend in our catch rates for alewives is fairly stable. Kind of alluding or going back to the upper river versus lower river, it seems that our catch rates are 
higher in these upriver creeks as compared to the, the lower river creeks. As far as bluebacks go, during that same time frame, we saw really low catches from 2012 to like, say, 2015. And then since then, we've seen our catch rates increase. I think our highest catch rate that we've seen to date happened last year. And that was the 150 fish an hour, which is way above what we can dip. You know, that's gear saturation at that point. So I think it's interesting that that same kind of phenomenon is what we saw in the Noose River in about the same time frame is that you guys remember Kelsey who was on here talking about hybrids? The second that she worked with me, our catch rates went up. So I think we can thank her for this, maybe? We just need to move her around from region, right. district to district, so we can up our catch rates. But anyway. Yeah. So her first year with us also started of increase in observed catch rates of fish in the noose as well. And we've kind of seen that since, too. So... What I tell folks is this is encouraging that we're seeing more fish. Absolutely. You know, but we're not maybe out of the woods yet as far as herring goes. And I think we're really at a point as far as the Wildlife Commission goes where we really need to start looking at this data and we need to start talking about, okay, we're seeing an increase, which is encouraging, which is what we want to see. Maybe what we're doing is working. If we can claim a win, we'd love to, you know, but we also don't want to claim a win that's not ours either so i don't know i'll take somebody else's win that's fine it's okay <laughs> still a win it's still a win so what are we going to look for chris in terms of what are our keys to let us know that things are moving in a positive direction aside from just well there's more fish here than last year because you know 30 heron from a statistical standpoint 30 heron is not necessarily more than 35 heron you know it could just be that we were better to dip in that day. Yeah, Ben. I mean, it's, while catch rates are a good tool, I mean, it's not all about numbers. We look at our size distributions. What does the size range look like in a population? A bad population, we're going to be constricted one way or the other, either a lot of really small fish or a lot of really big fish. You know, a healthy population, we have a mix of both. And we're starting to see that in our alewife and blueback populations. We're starting to see alewife anywhere from 11 to 12 inches, and then bluebacks anywhere from 10 to 11 inches, where we weren't seeing those in previous years. So, I mean, again, we've talked about this multiple species, multiple times on this podcast, like larger, older fish are important. Make a difference. They're important. They make more eggs. They've spawned more times. Like, they're an important component. Generally, their babies tend to survive better than younger fish. It's just, yeah, it just makes all the difference They're in the world. They're just keys to recovery. It doesn't matter if you're talking about striped bass, sturgeon, yeah, or heron. You name it. So one other thing that we, we look at and what's really unique about alosins, the river herring and the shad, is that when they come to spawn, we can take scales from them to age them. Well, when they transition from saltwater to freshwater, that water chemistry kind of etches a notch in their scales. So we can take a scale from a river herring or an American shad, for that matter, and look at the spawning marks. We can count how many times they've come back to the creeks or come back to freshwater to spawn. And I think that's a, a really key metric to use when we're looking or even talking about herring recovery. I think the last time we aged river herring was 
about 2018. And our repeat spawners for alewife ranged from 7 to 12%. So 7 to 12% of our fish that we caught were coming back to spawn. So if you were to take a sample this year and look at those scales, and you saw that more of them were multiple spawners, that would be another sign that maybe we're moving in the right direction. So I think it's, it's important for our listeners We're looking at catch rates, we're looking at the age of the fish, we're looking at the size of the fish, we're looking at the number of repeat spawners, we're combining some of those variables, and we're looking at different ratios between the males and the females, and metrics that we use to really weigh out what gains are we making. And from those gains, we decide, do we need to let the moratorium go a few more years, or can we allow a little bit of harvest, or have we recovered? There's several different triages of questions that we need to be constantly asking ourselves as we look at these data. I would say from where I'm sitting and looking at data and listening to y'all, recovery is going to be different than the fishery of the 70s and the early 80s. It just is. Will we ever get back there? Well, maybe we will, but probably not in my lifetime. Yeah, It's probably in somebody else's lifetime if that ever happens. But, you know, we as an agency and as a division, we are looking to try to recover this species. It's obviously very important to our communities down east. You know, a lot of people still care about herring. So it's probably the number one question we get. Maybe stripers is more, but it ain't far from being above stripers, particularly in certain spots in the state. And we want to get to a place where people can harvest herring and remember what that's about and have that cultural experience that they once had with their families. But we got to do it in a responsible way. And we ask these questions all the time about river herring. What's it going to take? And we're learning as we go. I would say that. I could be wrong, but I think we're learning as we go and that the more and more information we get from like people like Chris and TD and District 2, the more we learn about river herring and their life history, And hopefully one day we will have a fishery again. It's just going to take some time. And it's something that we assess annually. It's not something that we just wait to talk about 10 years from now. We're actually talking about this every year, where we are with river herring. And we're also looking at it from a planning standpoint of if not now, then when? Yeah. What will be the triggers that would allow harvest to happen? Which I think is also important so that we can kind of say, well... If we need to be at a seven and we're currently at a four, we'll be there soon. You know, we were at a two. So we're moving in the right direction. We're just not quite there yet because the last thing we want to do is claim a victory, open it up, and then go, oh my. Yeah, Yeah, that that was was the wrong decision. We should have waited just a little bit longer because if we open it up, we want to open it up in such a way that we don't have to ever close it again, hopefully. So, And at the end of the day, you know, we as a division and as an agency, I think I've already said this, but we don't like moratoriums. We want people to utilize a resource. And there are reasons, I think we've established that today, there are reasons why we have this moratorium. But we want to get rid of it as soon as we possibly can. I mean, I grew up down east. You grew up down east, Ben. You've lived a lot of your life now down east, Chris. You know the history and you know the importance of river herring. And it's something that my fear is is that they don't ever recover and we lose that historical and cultural connection to river herring. Not to mention they're 
so stinking important for every other species of fish we have swimming around that people like to go and right. catch. If you're a crappy fisherman, yeah, strong herring populations are important yes. to you, even if you've never thought about it. Never seen it or touched it or thought about because it. Because in the fall, these crappy look exactly like that garland straight tail we were using last summer. Yep. They're about two to three inches long. They're white. They're silvery. Yep. And the crappies are eating them out of the house and home. That's right. It's all interconnected. Everything we've ever talked about on this podcast is connected in some way or another. And river heron's just another piece of the puzzle. Well, Chris, you know, you're the expert on heron today. Is there anything else you wanted to make sure our listeners heard about heron? I don't want you to leave anything on the table. I think we kind of touched on a lot of them, you know, there's a lot of puzzles or pieces to the puzzle. You know, I think that's kind of a main take home as far as recovery goes. You know, you have your your habitat, your predators, your natural mortality that all go into play when when talking about recovery of of these river herrings. And we're working on all of those. We're working on the habitat side. Sure. Yep. We're working on the predator side. I mean, we work with all these predators, so we're trying to keep up. It's like you said, it's a puzzle piece, and people listening, we're trying to figure out how to pass hearing, pass culverts, and that kind of thing. That work's being done. So, right. There's one question that I get a lot of time about herring, and it's in regard to striped bass. You know, we've spent a lot of time working on striped bass in this state, and a lot of occasionally I get the question of, well, y'all. There's so many striped bass around now that the heron can't possibly get a foothold anymore. And so I wanted to talk about that briefly for a minute because striped bass are having their own issues. Yeah. And so our abundances, striped bass and heron kind of were brought into this world together and have kind of adapted to each other. Yeah. So striped bass, responsible striped bass management benefits heron as well and vice versa. The two go That's together. Right. One does not necessarily, or one goal does not necessarily compete with the other goal. But we do hear that a lot, and I just thought it would be good to bring it up kind of as we're drawing to a close here. It's been a lot of fun to have Chris on here. He's been great. He listens to the podcast. Chris's favorite thing, he's told me multiple times about oh, listening dear. to our podcast, <laughs> is listening to it at 1.5 times speed. No, 0.5x. Okay. Too oh, sl slower? Yeah, slower. Slower. Oh, wow. We probably really do sound Just southern. Drag on. Drag on. So I'm sure as soon as this airs, Chris is going to get opportunity to listen to himself at slow speed, too. I haven't done that. I'll have to do that so I can laugh a little. Yeah. So just say so if we're getting a little dull to you, maybe slow us down and it'll get a chuckle speed out us of it. Yeah, either way. Maybe sound like Alvin and a chipmunk. Yeah, chipmunk it up. Yeah. So. It's amazing how many people are enjoying this podcast and in what ways and in they what are. Ways they do it. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's been great to have them on here. Chris is a wealth of information. I hope that in the future you can come on and talk about this or something else, whichever you want to do. Is it time to talk about listener questions? Sure. Why Let's not? Let's do this. Just a reminder, you send in your questions and send us your address. We'll send you stuff back with the two bald biologist new logo on it. So Make sure when you send your questions in, you send in your address, and if we use it on the air, we will send you something. That's right. We'd love to send you a bunch of stuff, but right now, stickers is yeah, what you get. Yeah. So We're trying to do better, but it's a slow pace. Right. We're just started, you yeah. know, so we can't have all the swag all the time. No, you know? can't. We're building. 
The first thing let's talk about is ponds. The pond podcast. Man, I'm telling you. We've been biologists for a long time, and I've been a biologist for a long time in a Piedmont. I knew pond management was, because we were getting questions long before we ever sure. did the podcast. But my gracious, ever since we've done the podcast, evidently we didn't do a good enough job on the podcast because we're getting hammered. We're going to do another pond. We're going to have to do more pond podcasts. For sure, podcasts, because for sure. it's been a big interest. And I've dealt with a lot of you guys about your ponds since, you know, I've, sometimes I've even had to call you just because, you know, one question adds to another question, which is great. And I'm happy to help. So, you know, if you guys have questions about your ponds, let us know. But this particular question I get all the time. I got it when I was a biologist in Alabama. I get it now. And I've heard that a pond will populate itself with fish, even if it's not connected to water. I've heard the eggs can stick to the legs of birds like cranes and ducks and go from one body to the other. Is this true? Any takers on that one? Well, I know your feelings about this. My feelings are, could it be true? Sure. Is that how your pond got fish in it? Probably 99.99999% no. That's my take on it. I mean, can a bird's leg have an egg on it? Sure, maybe. I mean, but the chances of that happening and the chances of it surviving the flight and the... Ch there's just so many. There's also the magic pond stalker fairy that could help too. Chris had a good point. I mean, heron have sticky eggs. They do. So maybe they're sticking to legs. I don't think that's how you got heron in your pond, but anyway. Well, so here's my take on it. Come on, Ben, bring it. There's not much on a bird leg to hold on to. I feel that it's like Jurassic Park. You know, nature finds a way. And if water is left standing long enough, fish somehow find a way into it. And I mean, the other thing is it doesn't take much water. I've seen fish swim across a wet road before. So it really doesn't take. If you don't believe it, look it up on YouTube. Happens every day. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty interesting footage, yeah, to be honest. Cool to watch. But if there's water nearby, fish can find their way into it, which is why stocking appropriately is so important. Because if you do have water nearby and you don't stock your pond, you can wind up with a pond that's way out of whack from the get-go. It yep. just could end up with a mess pretty quick. So, yeah, I mean, he is right in the fact that it is rare to have a pond standing that doesn't have that fish. That doesn't in it. wind up getting fish in it. That's right. It does happen, but it's a rare example. So I would say the two-legged upright animal that's walking around that has a fishing rod in their hand is probably your biggest culprit that moved <laughs> fish into it. Yeah. A one bucket of brim can lead to a whole pond full, full of brim. brim. That's right. And a lot of times they'll get stunted out if there's no predators yeah. around. A lot of people see body of water and be like, I need to stock that with fish I've caught. It's a horrible idea. But anyway, we've discussed that before, too. Yeah, the best thing you can do is call your biologist or call us, and we'll get you in touch with your biologist and stock it appropriately, especially if it's a new pond or a pond that you know just doesn't have any fish in it. Yeah. The next question we have is from Mr. Price. He's a big fan of hybrid fishing. You know, we talked about hybrids, so this is probably where this question came from. And he says he used to catch some nice hybrids in Lake Townsend in a not-too-distant past, but he's not doing as good there anymore, and he's wondering if there's anything we can do to reconsider stocking Lake Townsend or getting it back on the stocking list. 
So Lake Townsend was stocked for quite a while, probably, I'm going to say the mid-80s maybe, with hybrids. It was one of the, it might be a little later than that, but anyway, it was sometime in the 80s, 90s, we stocked them, and we stocked them for quite a while there. In fact, throughout my career, up until probably the last maybe four or five years, it was stocked with hybrids. But what we had seen in our data over the past, say, five to 10 years is that the population had declined quite a bit. Yes, there are the occasional really large hybrid that gets pulled out of Townsend at this point. But a lot of them, I don't know if it was the change in the dam, because they replaced the dam there, and hybrids are really good at escaping, really good at escaping. Like, if you need an escape artist, go hire a hybrid. They're the ones that know how to do it. But I don't know what happened. But somewhere along the way at Townsend, biologically, they just don't do very well. And so we made a decision as an agency to really not waste those fish by putting them in Townsend because they're either going downstream or they're just dying out, or at least a significant portion of them are. And so we've moved those resources to other places like Heiko Lake. We started a fishery at Heiko Lake, which is not terribly far away. And there's also Ocala, really about 20 minutes up the road from Townsend. There's Ocala that has a really nice fishery, and we continue to stock that as well. And Corey has told me this multiple times, that not everything can be everything. Lesson number one of this podcast is fish need water. In fact, that might be our theme song if we ever have a theme song is fish need water. The second lesson that everybody needs to remember is not everything is meant to grow every type of fish perfectly. Every reservoir is not going to be the best bass lake. Every reservoir is not going to be the best crappy lake. And every reservoir is not going to be the best hybrid lake. And you can go on down the list. And that's true of rivers, too. I mean, that's not a reservoir phenomenon. That's everywhere. And so as you think about the places you fish, you know where the best bass lakes are. You know where the best crappy lakes are. And a lot of times, they aren't the same place. Mm -hmm. And fish just kind of find a way of that reservoir just sets up for the perfect storm for them to do really well in that situation. So... Take-home number two of this podcast is not every place is meant to be that fish's best place. And just from a fishing standpoint, and I've said this to people, I've moved around a little bit, and I've talked to folks that have moved around a little bit, and the best thing you can do when you move to a new area is figure out what the game is there and try to plug into it. If you move somewhere that was a great crappy fishery and you move to a great bass fishery, don't wish that it was a great crappy fishery. Plug into that great fishery that's there. And I think a lot of times that's where your success is met. And back to Townsend, yeah, at one time, people caught hybrids there pretty frequently. It was not a well-known fishery. You know, most people went there for bass and crappy, but there were definitely fishermen and anglers there that, that would focus on hybrids. But then as we saw in our catch rates and as we saw amongst anglers and we talked to the people, you know, that run, which is the city of Greensboro to run Lake Townsend, we realized that the hybrid fishery was on the decline. We could really tell that. And so as an agency, we have limited resources, right? You know, we have limited pond space of what we can and can't grow. And so sometimes we have to make those decisions and they're not always popular. We get that. I wish hybrids still did well at Townsend, but they don't. And so that's why we moved on from it. And because... The only way we get a hybrid is at our hatchery. Yeah, you know, it's not a natural thing going on for sure. They can't perpetuate themselves. 
And so the amount of them that we produce each year is, is kind of finite. And yeah, they have to be is. used in the best place possible. Next question. We've talked to uh, Mr. Cooper a couple times now, and he's getting his master's degree in aquaculture. And he's told me about that and, you know, asked for some career advice, which you've done on occasion. We might not be the best two to ask career advice from, but anyway, I digress. We Go do ahead. have a mentoring committee that we can get you yes, in touch with. we can with. get you in touch with. And we're not on it. There's probably reasons for that. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I'm actually on the committee, but I'm not oh, leading Oh, you are it. on I am. Oh, they didn't ask I me. I am. So, Maybe that's a reason for that, too. But anyway, so if you're looking to get into this career, we can get you in touch with the right people to kind of help give you that's some right. advice and provide some opportunity even maybe. But Mr. Cooper was saying he's looking for some leisurely reads and he wants to know if there's any books about catfish or coastal North Carolina fish. And so my mom is very well read and she likes to read books because she's very well read. Those two go hand in hand. One of her favorite books on fish, and it is a good book, is Found in Fish by John McPhee. It's about American shad. It's about how the American shad were very valuable in the Revolutionary War, the history, fishing about it, how to fish for them, the history of the fish, the biology of the fish. It's just a really interesting book, but it's not overwhelmingly scientific. So if you're looking for a book on that, that's a leisurely read, that might be a good one. So we answered a question and we met one of my mom's recommendations for the podcast. Talk about books. Talk about fish books. So two birds, one stone with there this question. Go. Way to knock it out. So what else do we have today? I think I'm good. I appreciate Chris being here. He's done a great job explaining what's going on with River Herring. And hopefully we're on the way up and not being stagnant and not on the way down right. with the population. That's our hope anyway. I'm encouraged. I, I think am the too. jury's still out, but I am, you know... Things look better than they did, which is always an encouraging thing that I think we can tell our anglers. That's so, right. Chris, thank you again for coming on the podcast. You're welcome back anytime, bud. Yep. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's podcast, Better Fishing with Two Ball Biologists. For more information, please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at twobaldbiologist at ncwildlife.org.